You're listening to audio provided by Valleydale Church. To find more resources or to donate to this ministry, please check out valleydale.org. Kirkwood, on September the 22nd, 1964, at Wheaton College, it's now Wheaton University. In those days, it was just Wheaton College. Dr. Raymond Ed, uh, Edmund, uh, former president of the school for 25 years, was speaking in chapel. Now, the students there loved him. They loved not only him, but they loved to hear from him. Uh, He was their favorite chapel speaker, and that morning, he was going to preach what would become an extremely famous sermon entitled, In the Presence of the King. And so, Dr. Edmund began that message that morning talking to the students at Wheaton about being in the presence of of an earthly king. He had the opportunity as president of Wheaton, as a minister, he was in uh, the continent of Africa, went to the nation of Ethiopia, and there he was taken before the king of Ethiopia, Ethiopia, uh, King Haile Selassie, and he talked about what it was like to meet royalty. Now, by this time next Sunday, we will have gone through, or not we, thank the Lord, not we, uh, England will have gone through the coronation of a new king. You know, we, we sing, uh, my country tis of thee, uh, sweet land of liberty. Had it not been for those willing to stand up, we would be standing up this coming Saturday singing, God save the king. Um, but we don't. Anyway, um, he goes and he meets this king. And uh, he talks about what it was like to meet uh, an earthly king, the power of an earthly king, especially uh, Haile Selassie. And uh, then he begins to talk about meeting the king of kings. And so he speaks to that chapel service, these college students, and uh, he begins to talk about them coming before the almighty king. Now I want you to listen to what he said. But I speak primarily of another king. This chapel is the house of the great king. This Church is the chapel of a great king. Chapel is designed to be a meeting on your part with the king of kings and the Lord of lords himself. To that end, chapel is designed for the purpose of worship. This is designed for the purpose of worship. He goes on to say chapel is to be a time of worship, not a lecture, not an entertainment moment, but a time of meeting the king. Come in, sit down, wait in silence before the Lord. In so doing, you will prepare your own hearts to hear the Lord. Your heart will learn to cultivate what the Scripture says, be still and know that I am God. Over these years, I have learned, Dr. Edmund says, I have learned the immense value of that deep inner silence as David, the earthly king, sat in God's presence to hear from him. And with that and those words, Dr. Edmund fell over dead. He just spoke about standing in the presence of the king and then suddenly he was in the presence of the king. Now when you come to the 19th chapter of Exodus, you come to something very much like that. 
Uh, they thought and talked about being in the presence of God for a year through all of those great demonstrations of the power of God. They thought they had been in the presence of God, but when God sets them free, when they come out of Egypt and God moves them three months down into the Sinai to uh, the mountain of God that we call Mount Sinai, when he gets them there, he's going to cause his presence now to come down on that mountain. And I want you to look at that with me this morning in Exodus chapter 19. Last week, I talked to you about two aspects of the character of God. I really talked to you about one of those, and I'm going to come back today and share with you the second. Then I'm going to show you what's in the heart of all of that. Um, I talked about the tenderness of God. God brought them. Look at verse 4. The latter part of verse 4 says, and he brought them to himself. And I shared with you that is the tenderness of God. God's word tells us two things about God's character. One, that God is love. We read that in 1 John. God is love. We also read that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God is love. The tenderness of God. And then you come to what Scripture says repeatedly over and over again, the holiness of God. God is holy. Do you know that the word holy is used 57 times in the book of Exodus? 57 times you read the word holy. Do you know where you read holy the very first time in the word of God? Exodus chapter 3 verse 5. When God speaks to Moses and says, take off those shoes because you're standing on holy ground. And you read about the holiness of the clothes that they were to wrap Aaron in in the very last chapter of Exodus. And so you come to a word that tells us repeatedly over and over that God is holy. He is tender. He is love. He is holy. And we're going to look at that right now. Now, one of the things I want to do in introducing this to you is ask you to put your finger in Exodus chapter 19 and go over to Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes, you come to Psalms and then you'll come to Proverbs and then you'll come to Ecclesiastes. Get over to that real, real clean portion of your Bible. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, and listen to what Solomon says in verse 1. Now, I said this last Sunday in one of the services. I don't think I did it in both, uh, but it's worth reading now as they come into the presence of God. Uh, you read this, Ecclesiastes 5 verse 1, guard your steps as you go into the house of God. Draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools. Now, just by deduction, I'm going to gather that the sacrifice of fools is running your mouth. Because he says, they don't know what they're doing. Don't be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring a matter up in the presence of God. Now, that's why I think that's what the sacrifice of fools must be, is that we are too wordy when we come before the Lord, and that we are impulsive, and we bring up all kind of ridiculous stuff when we should be concentrating on the holiness of God. Now, that's just a quick interpretation of that. For God is in heaven, you're on earth. Therefore, look at what it says. Let your words be few. One of the best things I can encourage you to do is to have a daily devotional time where you just don't pray so much but that you just sit and listen 
for the voice of God. Read the Word of God and then sit and let the Holy Spirit speak to you. Well, they're going to come now into the presence of God. What I shared last week was this. If you go to Jerusalem and you get to the Temple Mount area, to the south you will find the southern steps that have archaeologists have uncovered now, I think somewhere back in the 60s. I, I'm not real sure, but they uncovered them. We are certain that those are the steps that Jesus and his disciples walked up into. They're 2,000-year-old steps. They couldn't be anything other than the steps that Christ walked up. And when they were built, they were built in such a way, what is... Uh, what is the width of a normal step? A foot? Is that right? 12 inches? Well, when you, go, when you start to go up those southern steps, and they move on up pretty, pretty high, they move up almost a couple of stories. Uh, you may come to the first step, and it may be a foot wide. The next one might be a foot and a half, and the next one three feet. And then the next one may be two feet, and the next one may be a foot again. And the whole purpose in the steps there going into the temple was that you could not get up a running cadence going up those steps, you know, how we do. We just jump on up these steps like this. Well, you can't do that with those steps. You have to stop and think, you know, I, I can't bound up these steps. This one's now three foot wide. I've got to walk over to the next step. The whole purpose was what you read in Ecclesiastes. You don't bounce into the presence of God. You just don't come in trivially, you know, skipping into the presence of God. It ought to be something that is thoughtful. And that's what you're going to find with the holiness of God we see right here in the 19th chapter because the Lord is going to begin to give them a word about how you approach God in worship. Now, I want you to listen. Listen to a psalm, the 69th psalm, and the 18th verse. David prays, and he says this, Oh, draw near to my soul and redeem it. That's the thought of going into worship. Draw near to me. The half-brother of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, James, in James chapter 4, says this, Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, O sinners. And, um, and purify your, cleanse your hands, O sinners, and purify your heart, you double-minded. He tells you to do two things there as you draw. Cleanse your hands, purify your heart. And so he says, draw near to God, and you'll discover God is drawing. So they're drawing near to God, but what they are going to discover is that God was the one who drew them there. God's the one who drew you here. You think you just came with your wife this morning. You did not. God drew you here. God's brought you here. And so they're going to discover that as well. So I want to pick it up right there. So I'm going to pick up with point number two because point number one was last week, the tenderness of God. When you draw near to God, you find his tenderness. Now, secondly, when you draw near to God, you find the holiness of God. And what you're going to see here is extremely interesting. I'm going to pick it up in verse 9, but I want you to notice something. As we come to verse 9, the Lord says to Moses, Behold, I will come to you in a thick cloud so that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe in you forever. Then Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. What the people had said, he told to God. He shared with the Lord what the people had said. Now, the interesting thing is this, and I'm going to point this out at the beginning. God has brought them here to be near to him but he is going to place guards around the mountain and he's going to say, you keep your distance. 
So he brings them near, and then he keeps them at a distance. By the way, Scripture, Jesus does this an awful lot. He who would be first will be. You see, it sounds like an oxymoron. I've brought you here to be near me, but you keep your distance. Not only that, but he comes next, and he's going to show them his presence, but he's going to wrap himself in clouds and smoke. So you look at this, and you begin to wonder what's going on with all of this, and we're just going to see what God is doing here in all of this. So God brings them to this place for the purpose of what? To worship him. God brings them here because God wants them to worship him. And so God brings them near. He gives Moses instruction on this. How are we to come before God in worship? Now, I don't know what it was like at your house. My, my, my sweet wife is, she told me the other week, she says, I've not seen 10 of my grandchildren for so long. She says, I have got to see him. My heart's just hurting. And I said, well, honey, just go see him. So I put her on a plane, and she is with those grandchildren. And um, I got up with the dog this morning. And um, anyway, um, I don't know what your morning was like, um, but uh, that's what my morning was like. A lot of our mornings are just, we rush to the church. We rush to get up. We rush to get everybody dressed. We rush to get everybody something in their mouth, and we rush off to church. Well, God's going to say, you need to think about what you're doing when you come into my presence. My presence is here. And so he's going to give Moses that instruction about what they're to do. Now, I've had the opportunity to go to Versailles on a couple of occasions. I've never seen, I've, I've been in a number of palaces around the world, and I've never seen anything with as much gilded gold as the palace of Versailles. When you walk up to it, your mouth just kind of hangs open. When you walk into it, it just begins to take your breath away. You can't imagine the opulence of Louis XIV, the sun king, uh, the oldest ruling monarch in Europe. Yes, longer than Elizabeth because he ruled for 72 years. She ruled for 70. He ruled for 72 years and he went out just outside of Paris. He took a hunting lodge and he built the most glorious palace you could ever possibly imagine. And uh, it was there that he had his throne room. Now, let me tell you, the throne room of Louis XIV, the sun king, is as far from here to the back wall of the church. Now, that's the throne room. And down one whole side of that room are nothing but gold-flaked mirrors. The other side are these massive windows that overlook the gardens of Versailles so that everything on the outside is reflected in gold flake out of those. So you look here and you think you're looking outside. You look here, you think you're looking outside. You pass by these columns and all of this statuary and some of the most magnificent paintings in all the earth. And at the far end of the room is a dais where you would climb up the steps and there was the throne of Louis XIV who sat there in all his royal regalia. Now, you just did not walk into that throne room. There were anterooms, or let me call them preparation rooms. You would go through one preparation room after another. They would put you in one room and they would discern whether or not you smelt 
right, and if you didn't, they perfumed you. And then you would walk into yet another preparation room. And in that preparation room, they would determine whether or not your clothes were appropriate. And if not, they would do something. I don't know what they would do. I guess dress you in something. And then you'd go yet to another preparation room. In that preparation room, you were told, how do you approach the throne? How do you bow? How do you curtsy? What do you say? What is permissible? What is not permissible? What are you going to say to the king? How will you get out of there? How do you get out? You back up. You never turn your back to the king. And so you went from preparation room to preparation room to preparation room, and eventually you got into the hall there of the throne where the throne of Louis XIV was, and you would make your way eventually up to the throne of Louis XIV. Now, if that is true with a human king who dies, what about a sovereign, ever-living, ever-existing, almighty king? And so he comes to tell them how they are going to come before him. And he begins with a word. And I'm just going to walk you through this. He begins really with a word. And let me jump through this chapter. He comes with a word about purity here. So look at this. First of all, in verse 10, the Lord also said to Moses, go to the people. Consecrate them. Three things here. Consecrate them. Consecration is a process. It is not a single event. Consecrate them today and tomorrow. This is an ongoing process. Get them cleaned up. Consecrate them. Set them aside. That's what consecrate means. Get them set aside. Let them wash their garments. Verse 11, let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. So he gives them this and he tells them, he says, I want you to get yourself ready, and this whole thing is wrapped around purity. Listen to what David says in Psalm 24. Who may ascend to the hill of the Lord, and who may stand in his holy place? Who's going to get to go and stand before God? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. You come across that again. Who has not lifted up his soul to false false good, and who is not sworn deceitfully. So there is to be a purity about our lives. We are to cleanse ourselves as best we can, our hands and our hearts, before we come before God. Then you come to the priority here. Look down at verse 19. The priority, I'm sorry, verse 15, the priority here is this. He said to the people, be ready for the third day. Then he had, look at this, do not go near a woman. Now, why is that thrown in there? Uh, is, it, is it impure to have a husband-wife relationship? Well, no. Uh, but it does distract you. You, you remember the great uh, hymn, When a Man Loves a Woman? When a man loves a woman, he can't think of anything else. So the Lord says, not even the great privilege that I afford you in marriage should be your priority. I should be your priority. So you have no relations with one another during this period of time. You make me, now I know I've tried, it's uncomfortable sometimes to preach on things. So you try to make something a little light. But the seriousness here is this, is it your priority? 
And the third thing is this. The third thing that you come to is the presentation. So it came about, verse 16, so it came about on the third day when it was morning that there was thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it. In fire, he descended in fire, and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked violently. And when the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him with thunder. Jiminy Cricket. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called to Moses, and he called him to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Now, all of this is speaking now of the presence of God. You've got all of these things that, that describe the presence of God. He came down, we're told in verse 18, in fire. Fire all through Scripture is a symbol of the presence of God. It's a symbol of purity. It's a symbol of, it's a symbol of that which purifies because when you put all kind of metals into a crucible and you heat it up, they liquefy and all of the dross comes to the top so that the fire enables you to clean out the impurity. It's a symbol of purity. It is also a symbol that attracts, there's something about a fire that attracts you, isn't it? Have you ever discovered that? You know, a fire will attract you and at the same time, the heat will repel you. So you want to come close, but you can only get so close. That's the presence of God. That's what he's doing here. By the way, there is a smoke. There is smoke. There is cloud. What is that? That's the overpowering presence of Almighty God. When you're wrapped up into a cloud, when you're wrapped up into very thick smoke, um, you, 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 you have no sense of anything else around you except that. Have you ever been up into like the Rockies and gotten up into the clouds on the Rockies or even, even here on the, in the Appalachians, you can do it. Get up on Mount Mitchell and you, you, if you get to the top, you'll be above the clouds, but you're just engulfed in thick clouds. Or have you ever found yourself, hell, heaven forbid, just surrounded by thick smoke? You're aware of nothing else. You can't see anything else. You're just aware of the presence of the cloud and the smoke. Here was the presence, the overwhelming power, presence of God Almighty. Thunder, lightning, and earthquake, that all speaks of his power. There is the darkness that is there. That's the mystery of God. There is darkness there because a lot of God is mystery to us. You don't know everything there is to know about God. What you do know about God has come from this. All you know about God, not from some television yahoo, but from this. But this is not all there is to God. But what it does give us is mighty good. He's mystery. We don't understand all of the things about election, regardless of who stands up and says they do. We don't understand all the things about uh, the, the salvation of God. Listen, let me tell you, God is somewhat mystery to us. And so the darkness speaks of the mystery of God. You come 
to the last thing, and that's the trump of God. What does the trumpets herald? It signifies the entrance of royalty. Do you understand You can watch this this coming Saturday. There will be those herald trumpets that will herald the coming in and the going out of a a newly coronated king. But let me tell you something. There's going to be a trumpet that will blow one day. And the Lord himself will descend with the shout and the voice of an archangel and the trump of God. That's exactly what you hear here. It's just a little foretaste of what we're going to hear one day. That trumpet is going to sound, and it, like this, it'll probably sound and get louder and louder until you think we can't take anymore. And in that day, we'll be taken up, thank God. May it happen soon. Maranatha. Um, buddy, I'm saying that after a week where I've been skinned, whooped, beat, tarred, feathered, and hung out in the Southern Baptist Convention. But that's okay. At my age, I don't, I don't care. Anyway, back to the, back to the passage. Um, that's the trumpet of God. That's what's going to happen. Now listen, in all of that, I want you to listen to what Job said in the last chapter of Job when he comes and he makes that famous statement. He says, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. I've heard about you. They've heard about him. But they're going to see God here in a way they've never seen God, not even in those 10 plagues that were back there in Egypt. So, You look at all of that and you say, when a preacher, that happened back there. None of this means anything to me. Listen, let me tell you something. Yes, it does. There are two things here you need to to walk away from this passage with. And what you need to walk away from this passage with is this. This creates a sense of worship. Or at least it should in your life. Now, I've told you at the beginning, you could go back to the very opening of Exodus. And right over Exodus, you could write these words, worship. This whole book is about worship. Exodus is, is the English translation of the Greek word exodos. And it means to exit. It means to go out. It means to leave. But let me tell you, the book of Exodus is not about just the exit. It is about the entrance into the worship of God. You exit out of there in order to enter into here. They exited out of Egypt in order to enter in the worship of God at Sinai. We've exited out of the world to come in here to do what? Hopefully not to be entertained. Hopefully not just a sermon sample. Hopefully not just to be, you know, tickled to death by something funny. Hopefully we've come in here to gather as the people of God to do one thing and one thing alone, and that is to worship. That's what I'm prompting you to do. That's what I'm attempting to get you to do. Your worship in this place is what God is watching. You say, well, I thought he was watching you. He already knows what I wrote. He already knows what I'm going to preach. He's heard it all week. 
So now he comes to watch you to see how you worship and to see how you respond to all of this. Now, when you look at this, what God is doing is God is trying to create a hunger. God is trying to create a desire with all of this fire, the smoke, the cloud, the quaking of the mountain, uh, with all of this darkness, with all of these things that are happening, the thunder, the lightning flashes, all of this, the loud trumpet, he is trying to create in them this hunger for worship, this hunger to be in his presence. Man, I long to be in the presence of God. I want to be in the presence of God. Things happen when I get into the presence of God. Things change when I get into the presence of God. All of this is, is God trying to create in them a hunger to worship. And you say, well, now, preacher, if, one of, if all of that happened on a Sunday morning in the middle, of, can you imagine if all of that broke loose right now, that all of a sudden you, there was thunder and there was lightning in this place and smoke and fire and cloud and the earth began to quake here on the top of this hill. This room began to shake and quake. And there was the sound of a trumpet that started blaring. You say, well, you know what? If we walked out of that service, I don't think we'd ever forget it. They didn't forget it either. But they got beyond it in 40 days. They got beyond it in 40 days. Oh, if God would just do this. Oh, if God would just do that. Well, he's done it all. And it didn't stick with them longer than 40 days. God help us. This whole thing here is for worship. God's going to give Moses a verbal diagram. The rest of this book is going to be when we get past Sinai it, or, or or the giving of the law there, when we get past all of this, over when we get uh, into the rest of this, is going to be God giving a verbal diagram, a verbal set of plans to Moses for a tabernacle. For this reason. He's going to, they're going to build that, and God says you're going to put that in the middle of the tribe. There'll be three tribes to the north, three to the south, three to the west, three to the east, they will camp in the middle of their camp will be the tabernacle and they will get up every morning and look out and see that tabernacle. They'll go to bed at night. The last thing they will see outside the flap of that tent is that tabernacle. And they will think of the worship of God and the presence of God in their midst morning, noon, and night. Do you know why? Because we get over it so quickly. You know, Luther said, you need to go to church every Sunday and hear the same gospel over and over again because we forget it so quickly. Well, he brings them there to worship. I can tell you, y'all are all head up this morning. Let me give you the second thing. The second thing is to generate his, this sense of holiness. He comes down in all of this in order to create and generate this sense that he's holy, and he calls us to be holy. He wants the world to be seen. He wants the world to see him through these people. That's why he's going to say, I've brought you here to make you a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now hold on to that because I'm going to get back to it. But let me show you something in the middle of all of this. And you could put this down as number three, and it's the third thing. And drawing close to God, drawing near to him, 
you discover you are his possession. You wonder, does God love me? Does God care for me? Is God interested in me anymore? Uh, Is there anything about me that God still cares for? Now listen to what he says in verse 5. Then if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my own possession among all the people. You know what this is? This is is basically a wedding ceremony. When I came to an altar, I entered into covenant on that August the 5th, 1901. Um, When I came to that altar there at the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church, I had a Baptist preacher and I had an associate Reformed Presbyterian preacher. And uh, they put us together. And uh, right there at that altar, I entered into covenant with Miss Debbie. That's exactly what's happening here. I am in covenant with God. I've come to him as if God were marrying us together. That's exactly what's happened to you. You will be at that point. At that point, do you know what happened? Her father gave her to me. He said, buddy, you can pay for it now. He gave her to me. She became, you know what? My possession. My possession. And I'd shoot anybody that got close to my possession. I'm telling you. I'm just serious. And I became hers. I've done better with my possession, hadn't I? Huh? She became, that's exactly what he says right here. You come and enter into this covenant with me. You are now my own possession. I've told you this multiple times. It's it's beautiful to me. The story is that a king owns everything. And that's exactly what we're told here. God says, uh, you'll be a kingdom, a priest to me, a holy name. These are the words that I speak to you. He comes and he says, that, listen, you are mine. I am the Lord God of everything. Everything is mine. So in a kingdom, everything was the king's, but they gave him a little box of jewels, diamonds, rubies, sapphires, emeralds, all of these precious stones they gave to him That became known as the king's own possession. Because he owned everything, he really could claim nothing, but he had this box of jewels. That's what this describes. Peter talks about this in the New Testament as well. You are God's own possession. You belong to God. You are the jewel. And listen, let me tell you something. He holds you like a diamond so that his glory will be refracted, reflected out of you, refracted out of you, so that his glory will shine to everyone else. So when they look at you, it's not you that stands out the most. It's the Christ who lives in you. That's the glory of God. That's his, that's his glory. That's his holiness. That's, and it all is wrapped up in his tenderness as well. So that this holy God calls an unholy man and an unholy woman to himself. And in doing that, he takes them and they become his own personal possession. You belong to God. By the way, I think that's what's stamped on you that nobody can see with human eyes because you've been sealed. If you're saved, you've been sealed by the Holy Spirit till the day of redemption. There's something spiritually stamped on your head, and I think it says God's own possession. 
bought by the blood of Christ. How do y'all just sit there? If I didn't, if I were not standing up preaching, I'd have to get, get to stand up or something. I'm telling you. We really can't understand the beauty of the holiness of God. Get a little glimpse of it. Paul says we see through a glass dimly. Dimly. We just eke out something out there. But there's going to come a day when we'll see him in all of his beauty. I don't know if you've ever, ever heard of William Montague Dyke. His father, Sir William Dyke, was part of the British aristocracy. He was knighted. He was part of, had been part of the house, you know, had been a member of parliament, was now part of the House of Lords. Very influential man. His son, William Montague Dyke, in a tragic accident at 10 years of age, lost his sight. The boy grew up blind. He finished school. He was extremely smart and wanted to go to the university. Now, there was some question about could a blind child go to university? Could a blind boy make it through university? But they sent him off to university, and do you know what? He passed with the highest of marks through the university, even though he was blind. And while he was there at university, you know what happened? He met a girl and fell in love. She was part of the British aristocracy as well. Her father was an admiral in the British Navy. She fell in love with him. He fell in love with her. Her father was not real sure how this was going to work out. He tried to discourage his daughter and tell her, look, what are you going to do? What's he going to do? How's he going to work? How's he going to earn a living? And uh, what's going to come of you? He, you'll never, he'll never be able to see you. you you'll, there'll be something missing in this relationship. But she told him, she says, he, he has my heart. I love him, and I want to marry him. And so to do everything that he could, William Montague Dyke decided to have experimental surgery. They had just uncovered a type of surgery they thought may possibly work on him. And so he goes in for surgery, and he has the surgery, but they wrap his eyes up so that he cannot see any light, so that no light can enter in at all. And they said, now, you'll have to wait six weeks. Six weeks, you'll have to be like this until your eyes heal completely. And he says, then we will unwrap your eyes and slowly, very slowly, you can very slowly open your eyes and just peek to see if you see any light whatsoever. He said, in about six weeks will be the day of my wedding. And he said, what I'd like to do is this. I'd like to have the surgery and I want my eyes to be unwrapped as I stand at the altar with my bride, I want the first thing to see that I see is the face of the girl I love. And so on that wedding day, Sir William Dyke stood beside him and the surgeon stood on the other side. And when they had pledged their vows together, the surgeon reached up and slowly began to unwrap 
the wrapping from around his head. You think you know where this is going, don't you? And as all of the bandages came off, he slowly opened his eyes and could see a little thin line of light. And then just a little more, slowly he opened his eyes and he could see all of the color flooding in from the stained glass windows. But nothing but shadows until he opened his eyes fully. And there in front of him was his bride. And he said, I only thought that you were beautiful. But you are so much more than that. There will be a day when this world will fall away from our eyes as we stand before our bridegroom and he will be so much more than just beautiful. He will be every superlative you can think of. Let's stand and pray about it. Where are you this morning? I invite you to come to Jesus. I can't even begin to describe to you what it's like to follow him. I can't begin to describe to you everything that he is to the human soul. He's far more than beautiful. He is wonderful. He is majestic. He is holy. He is tender. He is kind. He is long-suffering. He is a friend that sticks closer to a brother. He is the rock that brings stability in a world that is constantly tremoring. He's the beginning. He's the end. He's the morning star. He's the alpha. He's the omega. He's the beginning and the end. He's everything that you've ever hoped for. He's everything you've ever dreamed of. He is far greater than the greatest thing your mind can imagine. You can't plumb his depths. You can't reach the height of his wisdom you couldn't put your arms around the massiveness of his everlasting love but he will wrap you in his everlasting arms come to Jesus come to the one who is tender and the one who is holy come to him and be his possession Lord, in these moments, do what you will. Move on our hearts. Speak to our minds. Draw us to you as only you can. For I pray it in Jesus' name. You come as God speaks. Thank you for listening to this recording from Valleydale Church. To find more or to connect with us about what you just heard, check us out at valleydale.org.